0: This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Majority Report, The Young Turks, Radio Shock Comedian Lee Camp, Moyers & Company, The Undercurrent, and The Tom Hartman Program. And a note for our more sensitive listeners that this episode contains elements of hope, so if, as a liberal, you're not used to that, you may wish to brace yourself.
1: Last week, we had... Jeff Orlowski, who was the director producer of a film called Chasing Ice, which I keep recommending to you, if you're in D.C. or you're on the West Coast, you can. Do, we have a link on the blog to the site uh, Chasing Ice to find out when it's playing. And you know, just to offer some shred of optimism on the uh, global warming front, this is a video that I just saw of a woman who. Had just seen Chasing Ice. I don't know if she saw it in New York or in DC. Uh, she must have seen it just in the past couple of days. This is a video apparently shot, uh, a testimonial from this woman when she came out of the theater. And it is extremely encouraging. Like I say, you can listen to the whole Jeff Orlowski uh, interview uh, from uh, last week on the show. If you have a chance, go see the movie. But uh, the movie—it's a beautiful movie, and it's obviously extremely powerful. But listen to what this woman had to say—it's—it is reason for optimism.
2: Just let me just let me say what I have to say. That I watch Bill O'Reilly every day. I love Bill O'Reilly. I'm proud to be an American. But I saw this movie, Chasing Ice, today, and it, it hasn't just changed me about global warming. It has changed me as a person, and. There is something, I don't know what I can do. I'm 60 years old, but there must be something I can do to help yeah, right. to help our children, to help my grandkids. But I'm going to change it, because yeah. this movie was fantastic. Every human being in this world should watch this movie. Everyone.
1: And you didn't believe in global warming?
2: And I did not believe in global warming. I'm going to be 60 on December 21. And every time someone mentioned global warming to me, I told them if they wanted to remain in my home, they needed to step out. Because I said it was bullshit. I didn't believe it. Excuse my language. And that is because I listened. And this is the truth. I believe Bill Riley.
1: And now you saw this movie. And I saw this
2: movie. movie. And I apologize to anyone I ever talked into, not into believing there was no global warming. I have talked to every friend, every person I know into believing there is no global warming. And now I have to undo my damage, and I will. But the moment I go to my car, go home, go to my computer, it has changed my life. Wow, that's great. That's really cool. Thank you. Thank you for giving me this moment. It was a great movie.
1: Okay, thank you. Wow, powerful stuff. So that's encouraging. And uh, again, if you have the opportunity to see this film, uh, go do it by all means.
3: Despite the fact that the last few years have just been chock full of extreme weather events and rising temperatures, as we're going to show you shortly, um, in the past few years, public support for doing something about climate change, or even recognizing that climate change is happening, had actually been dropping over where we saw it eight, ten years ago, not just in the United States, but also in the UK and some other uh, Western European countries. But thankfully, one of the few silver linings coming out of Hurricane Sandy is that we have some new uh, public polling data that says that people are thankfully starting to believe in climate change. and its negative effects on the country once again. So uh,
4: let me just jump in for one quick second. It's not just Hurricane Sandy, too, to be clear. But that makes it's, it real for people. No, no, it makes it real for the media, but for uh, the rest of us throughout the country, it's a series of events: the droughts, the fires, the, fire. the record heat, etc. And so you don't get to see the numbers that John's about to show you unless a lot of people are affected. You know, so it wasn't just the East Coast, the tornadoes in the middle of the country, the it, it, droughts in Texas, etc. But you know, there's something.
5: This is going to sound so stupid, but as a a football and basketball fan in college football basketball of the uh, West Coast, my whole life, even when I grew up on the East Coast, UCLA and so forth, and we always talked about East Coast bias, Mm -hmm. which was very real in the days before (laughs) the internet, because you know people literally didn't see the games on the West Coast. It still exists a little bit, but it's a little bit true still, even in this. Like all of a sudden, you got an extreme weather situation that hit where the people who cover this stuff live. Yeah. yeah. You know, even though we've had equally dangerous or as we'll tell from the story, you know, the drought of this year is more dangerous than Hurricane Sandy. But of course, Hurricane Sandy hit where they live, so all of a sudden, the East Coast bias working in favor of uh, acknowledging climate change.
4: Right. That's because that's where ninety percent of the media is—the yeah. news media, New York and Washington. So whenever they're affected by something, they're like, "Did you know there's this thing called climate change?" <laughs> there's, cl- there's two things: there's climate change, and the football team in Oregon, it turns out, is good. What in the world <laughs> is going on? Next thing you know, there'll be a good team in Boise. <laughs> right, totally. Exactly. Okay. All right. Yeah. So give us a stunning numbers. Yeah. So
3: I, what I think is probably the best overall is um, public support for elected officials actually doing something about this. So we have um, 65% now agree that elected officials should take some steps to reduce the impact of climate change with just 27% waiting for more evidence. And because <laughs> that's, that's the counter argument to climate change, like, oh, let's gather data for another 50, 100 years, um, thankfully people don't seem to be buying that.
5: I want to do a book that has those, th- about the 27%. <laughs> like in all these polls, what uh-huh. fucking more evidence do you want? Like, also, I like the idea that they're soberly considering it. Yeah, mm-hmm. you yeah, know I've I've seen it. It's interesting. I've read the data, but I'd like more <laughs> evidence. Your that doesn't matter. You don't you don't pay attention to anything. Yeah. What more evidence is there? Well, A windstorm blows away your
4: house. Well, ironically, <laughs> the people waiting for evidence are the least likely to actually look at the evidence. Oh yeah. Yes. And and by the way, I was in that category on climate change. You know. Fifteen, twenty years ago, and I was like, "Well, look," and they say it's gonna happen, but I don't—I haven't really seen it happening yet. And then you know what happened? It happened, <laughs> I yeah. said, and it's not me just seeing a storm here or there. You look at the overall data, and it is as clear as day, as we'll show you in a little bit. But this is a really encouraging number—sixty-five yeah. to twenty-seven, saying it's happening. But you know it's horseshit, and we should do something. But you didn't agree with
5: it 20, fifteen years ago, but and the, but me, I, I may have been in that camp too. And the problem is, it's all marketing. It's all about how stuff is sold, always, and the ineffectiveness of the environmental movement for years, which was so easily dismissed by. The spotted owl and tree hugger. Exactly. And so you're like rolling your eyes at these guys. And then when they came with something incredibly serious that affects the world economy to the table, we were like, oh, the tree huggers.
3: But yeah, actually, directly related to that, why don't we go to uh, graphic two? Uh, and so you see here, um, 69% greatly or somewhat worried about the growing cost and risks of extreme weather disasters fueled by climate change. Um, and even a majority of Tea Party sympathizers. And so when it's just about protecting a spotted owl somewhere, nobody's really in support of that. But when they see that, oh my god, this could actually like, wreck our economy, it could, t- it could add to the deficit. like. I think for some people who aren't concerned about owls and things like that, this puts it in terms that I think that they're more
5: again. How are you? How are you a Tea Party member and not concerned about that? That's where those. Where's the other 42 no, percent? This is the I first know, time I they've know, been Look
4: at all the propaganda the Tea Party's gotten from the Republican Party, like "drill baby drill" yeah, and the I climate do. change is bogus, et cetera. And 58 percent of them say it's Look, you look at those numbers, and the fact that President Obama did not emphasize climate change at all during his mm-hmm. re-election. It goes to show again that he's, look, he ran a great campaign in other ways, but when it comes to issues where he should be progressive and has the great majority of the American people behind him, he just doesn't do it a great yeah. number of times. And obviously there's reasons for that, donors, et yeah. Well,
5: there's political capital for it now. As yeah. We're yeah. In these polls. So let's see what he does.
4: Speaking
3: of those donors, we have some data on that as well. So you see the, uh, the amount of donations from the oil and gas industry in 2012, $59 uh, million dollars just in 2012. Um, you also see, in terms of the lobbying that they did in 2012, $104 million.
4: Um, in Washington, that'll that'll take you away. Think about that, man. That's just one year. They're not spending one hundred and sixty-three million dollars overall for their health. Yeah, that's that's what gets you all the congressmen. And by the way, today there are a bipartisan group of senators that are saying to President Obama, "Make sure you do the northern half of the Keystone Pipeline, yeah. okay?" And gee, I wonder if some of that one hundred and sixty-three million dollars went in their pockets. No, no, of course. Of
5: course, of course, it did. By the way, they should be spending that 163 million uh, on their health. They work in the oil and gas industry.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So we're going to get in just a minute to to what Obama has been saying about this. But but in advance of it, let's see what do the independents think we should do to deal with this. So 12 percent think that Keystone could help solve America's energy challenges. 12 percent. See that? That's
4: why we should be in favor of Keystone. What?
3: Wait what is renewable energy but it's uh... it's got four times as much support we have uh, an amazing uh, two facts that that Cenk, uh... discovered this morning so let's yeah, turn to Jenk uh, discovered them. That's
4: great yeah. Yeah. well
3: yeah, he went out and he did uh, he did some temperature uh, analysis
4: uh, <laughs> i know i was drilling for facts so <laughs> exactly with that
3: that sounds nasty uh... this is now the three hundred and thirty second consecutive month with an above average temperature that's amazing that's Insane, but to put it in, in, in very human terms, if you were born after April 1985, you've never once lived through a month that was colder than average. Um, and I imagine that for the next 20, 30, 40 years, you probably
4: won't. Uh, so that's pretty to amazing. To that 85 number was the most yeah, staggering. Thing. Yeah, staggering. Wow, can you imagine every single month of your life? Has been hotter than the average month, but mm-hmm. you don't know it because yeah. it's never been average for you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah right.
5: Also, I don't think people generally think of their lives in that way. <laughs> <laughs>
4: of course they're not. They're like, How wait, crazy? I feel that this month was at least 0.2 degrees warmer <laughs> yeah. than it was 20 years ago yeah. <laughs> when right. I wasn't around. February '98,
5: okay. I was 13. I recall that being particularly cold. No. No?
4: Okay, because <laughs> hmm. <Guess> I'm wrong. <laughs> to, to, to put it in very
3: nerdy terms, we are, as they would say in Game of Thrones, we are children of summer, and it turns out that winter is not coming, actually. Oh, Maybe not for 50, 60
4: years. Nicely done!
0: Your shopping experience will be identical to normal, it will cost you nothing extra, but 7-8% to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be.
6: Who could have foreseen the amount of damage Hurricane Sandy caused in New York City and New Jersey? Well, Mike Tidwell sure did. A half dozen years ago, Tidwell published his book titled The Ravaging Tide, Strange Weather, Future Katrinas, and the Coming Death of America's Coastal Cities. Mike is the founder and director of the Chesapeake Climate Action Network, a grassroots nonprofit dedicated to raising awareness about global warming in Maryland, Virginia, and Washington, D.C. He's also a filmmaker and an award-winning environmentalist. Mike Tidwell, welcome to Radio EcoShock.
7: Thank you so much for having me.
6: Now, when you published The Ravaging Tide, what did you say could happen to New York City?
7: You know, anyone who looks at a map and sees the geographic features of New York Harbor and and Manhattan uh, is made quickly aware of the fact that if a big surge tide from a hurricane were to enter that New York Harbor and surrounding areas, there's nowhere for the water to go but up. You know, basically, New York Harbor and the East River and Hudson River form a kind of catchment for water. And once that water gets in there, literally, there's nowhere for it to spread out. There are no vast wetlands, interior wetlands, or flat areas. And the only place for the water to go is up, which is why New York is, in many ways, a a basket case waiting to happen. And when I wrote my book in 2006 after Katrina, You know, many, many of us concerned about climate change, you know, lifted our gaze to say, well, if this kind of disaster can happen in New Orleans, where else might it happen from, you know, the combination of sea level rise and rising sea surface temperatures that provide the fuel for hurricanes? If a really big hurricane hit elsewhere in the United States, where might the most damage be caused? and uh, New York just, uh, you know, jumped out at me during my research, um, and that's why I basically, in my 2006 book, described pretty much everything we've seen the last week. In fact, the paperback version of that book, also that came out in 2006, has an illustration of Manhattan with water pouring into it uh, in a really sort of spooky, foreshadowing way. So I, I guess it just You know, anyone who's out of denial about climate change and is looking at the real reality of sea level rise and bigger storms, you know, was very clear that New York was vulnerable. And even uh, Mayor Michael Bloomberg was warning about these impacts potentially happening.
6: And how was your book received? Did people believe it or criticize or just ignore it?
7: Well, the, the book was published by Free Press and uh, it got good reviews, but, uh, you know, there's that whole people not wanting to hear bad news and change is difficult for people. And I have a friend who's told me, please stop writing books because in 2003 I wrote another book called Buy You Farewell that predicted the Katrina hurricane disaster. Literally the subtitle of that 2003 book. Uh, was the rich life and tragic death of louisiana 's Cajun coast again published in two thousand and three, two years before the Katrina disaster because that disaster was obvious to anyone paying attention as well because of the poor levees, the rising ocean levels, the disappearing wetlands and barrier islands Katrina was a was a disaster foretold by many journalists and activists like myself for many years before it came. But even in that book was not well received before it came out, warning about a potential Katrina and and the two thousand book, two thousand six book, the Ravaging Tide. Again, good reviews, but uh, this country is kind of slow to um, let in the reality of climate change, and as a result, we're just we're delaying solutions so long that we're entering a period of consequences, serious consequences, and that's uh, I think what we've seen with Hurricane Sandy. You know, we all hope that we can respond fast enough and get off of carbon fuels fast enough this century to to prevent the worst impacts of global warming. But you have to wonder, what is it going to take? And is it going to take uh, Katrina 2, 3, and 4 and Sandy 5, 6, and 7? I don't know. I hope
6: not. Well, in a recent press conference, you explained a new concept that everybody needs to grasp after Hurricane Sandy, and I'm talking about that continual line in scientific circles and echoed by the press that says you can never blame a single storm like Sandy on climate change. What do you say to that?
8: Well, the
7: real answer to that question, did global warming cause Sandy, the real answer is yes, absolutely. And how can someone say with certainty that global warming caused Sandy when we've been told over and over again that you can't tie any single weather event to global warming? The reason you can say with certainty that global warming caused Sandy is because we've changed the great ecological systems of this planet. Nobody can deny that we are already seeing sea level rise. We've had about a foot of sea level rise worldwide in the last 100 years attributed almost entirely to global warming. When you melt the land-based glaciers, the oceans rise. When you heat the oceans uh, in terms of temperature, the water expands, and those two factors together cause sea level rise. So we've, we know sea level rise is happening. There's no controversy there. You can measure it. It is a fact. We also know that we've increased moisture in the atmosphere because of global warming. The warmer the planet is, the more evaporation occurs over oceans, and the more moisture is in the atmosphere. So that's number two. We know there's been a 5% increase in moisture in the global atmosphere just since the 1970s. And then on top of that, we know we've we've raised the sea surface temperatures of the world's oceans, in including the Atlantic Ocean. Those are all not disputable. Those are facts. More moisture, you can measure it, higher ocean temperatures, and more sea level rise. So we've systemically changed the planet already. And systemically, those are the main drivers of Hurricane Sandy, warm water, sea level rise and more moisture in the atmosphere. So systemically, we clearly made Sandy the monster that she was because we've changed these systems. And when you look at it from that perspective, in terms of systemic causation, systemic causation, then it's clear that the fingerprints of climate change are all over this hurricane, undeniably. We live our
9: lives like hands are tied Up every days but forsake the feeling Are we killing time while this day's on why
10: I think there's a greater reason why we are willing to put billions of dollars and millions of man-hours into obtaining power sources like oil, coal, and nuclear, but we are not willing to put nearly as much effort and dollars into solar, wind, and wave power. The reason is because deep down in our core in a place we don't talk about where our love of hatred, violence, and dominatrix porn dwells, deep down there, we like that there's a risk of chaos and death involved in tapping oil coal and nuclear energy oil spills and explosions radioactive meltdowns and mine collapses fracking earthquakes and flammable tap water yeah how f- awesome is that we jammed our pipes so deep into the earth we caused an earthquake who's your daddy now there's not the same angry wolverine on his period bring it on feeling with building a wind farm or a solar panel. Wind turbines rarely explode with the heat of a thousand suns and cause everybody within a hundred mile radius to flee with their pets and babies on their backs and pants around their ankles. Which is why I think the only way we can save the world and convince everybody to switch to wind and solar and wave power is to make them dangerous as Every two years, a solar panel should explode with the force of a neutron star, wiping out a small country. Occasionally, a wind turbine should spring a leak and release hurricane-force gales, causing uh, cows and chickens to splatter in the middle of suburban neighborhoods 50 miles away. Maybe solar panels could release radiation, resulting in nearby populations growing gills on their chests and hair on their eyeballs. Wave-powered generators should malfunction, suddenly spraying a Quarter million Piers Morgans out into the ocean. You know, horrible, horrible stuff. Because as it stands now, the only risk of a wind turbine is that an occasional pigeon gets a bump on the noggin. And we as humans clearly will not put up with such safe and renewable power. We want risk. We want death and destruction, screaming and explosions. We want to feel like we captured a dragon that could escape at any moment, wreaking havoc on our way of life. This is why BP was just convicted of 11 felonies and is back to work after paying what, for them, is a small fine. If you or I were convicted of 11 felonies, no one would ever see us again. But we let BP go back to destroying the planet because somewhere deep down, we want destruction and misery. So all I'm saying is wind, solar, other renewable energies. If you want to save this planet, start killing more people. Then and only then will we consider you a real player.
9: What's with a.
10: Hey, this is Lee Camp. I hope you've enjoyed having my Moment of Clarity rants pumped into your skulls. If you have, you would almost definitely love my free Moment of Clarity backstage podcast where I discuss the topics of the day. You know, the little things like the corporate raping and pillaging of our world. I also have on fun, awesome guests like this lady. My name is Janine Garofalo. This guy. Hi, I'm John Oliver. And even sometimes this guy.
11: This is Greg Palace, and I've got my zipper caught in Moments of Clarity.
10: Free, at leaky. LeeCamp.net, iTunes, Stitcher, or the Android app. Plus, there's a Moment of Clarity book for those of you who thought, I love Moment of Clarity, but I hate how I can't lick it. Well, now you can. The Moment of Clarity book and ebook, get it at LeeCamp.net or on most e reader platforms. And remember, keep fighting and stay angry.
6: This is Radio Ecoshock. I'm Alex Smith. Our guest is Mike Tidwell, director of the Chesapeake Climate Action Network and author of the book The Ravaging Tide, Strange Weather, Future Katrinas, and the Coming Death of America's Coastal Cities. Well, Mike, talking about the coming death of America's coastal cities is pretty provocative. Is there really a possibility we'll have to abandon some coastal cities?
7: Well, you know, my publisher, Free Press, came up with that depressing title, The Ravaging Tide, Strange Weather, Future Katrina's, and the Coming Death of America's Coastal Cities. You know, most people want to reach for the razor blades when they when they hear that title. But the intent of the publisher was to really try to shock readers into understanding that these are the kind of things that will happen unless we take action. If we do take action to switch to clean, renewable energy as fast as we can, our leading climate scientists worldwide say that we can probably avoid the worst impacts of global climate change. And by worst impacts, I mean... You know, not just one or two or three feet of sea level rise, but up to 30 feet of sea level rise if the Greenland ice sheet disappears. We can't adapt to that. We would have to abandon coastal cities if we got 30 feet of sea level rise by the end of this century. The worst impacts also include just the kind of catastrophic droughts on a regular scale that we've seen in North America this past year, the kind of growing size of storms and all these impacts together. That's what a world of two, three, four, five degrees more warming. We can't go there. We do have to do some adaptation. I mean, we have some more warming in the bank, no matter what we do, because carbon dioxide lingers in the atmosphere for up to a century after you release it from the combustion of fossil fuels. So there's a momentum toward more warming and more ocean rise, no matter what we do, but it's still more in the adaptable range. And so what we need to do is start to adapt to the warming we can't prevent, and we need to prevent the warming that we can't adapt to. You know, one or two more degrees of warming, we're going to have to build floodgates for New York City. We're going to have to build levees for many of our coastal cities, but there's a reasonable chance that we can still inhabit these coastal areas. However, if we get to three or four or five degrees of warming and the Greenland ice sheet disappears then we will see the death of most of our coastal cities just because they won't be habitable. You're not going to be able to live in areas that are perpetually in flood state, perpetually pelted by rain and, and threatened by high wind. And so it is a very real threat. I think that Hurricane Sandy is a curtain raiser. I think that Michael Bloomberg, Mayor Michael Bloomberg, had it right this past week when he said we have old infrastructure in New York, and we have a new reality in terms of weather. And what he meant by that was, one, we have to confront climate change. We have to uh, acknowledge that it's real. It's one of the reasons Michael Bloomberg gave for endorsing uh, President Obama uh, for the presidency. And we also, the mayor is realistic to acknowledge, need to adapt to much of it as well. And that's a scary new world that we're entering. You know, the idea of major floodgates for New York City and levees, in Washington, D.C. and Baltimore, sort of the New Orleansization of many of our coastal cities, you know, sort of committing to the New Orleans model of living below sea level behind levees is a scary prospect, the one that we're going to have to embrace at some level to adapt to the global warming that's already happening.
6: Well and hopefully the people of America, the people who are getting washed out and, and having such severe damage and always having to clean up and rebuild and losing their homes and even losing their loved ones, they're gonna put some pressure on the politicians and say, Look, this is really happening, do something.
7: I think you're seeing more of that. I think that you know having the the governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo mentioned climate change repeatedly in the aftermath of Sandy. The mayor of New York City, an independent, a political independent mentioning climate change, you know, as a as a core problem. You have the Bloomberg Business Week magazine on its cover this week. It said in very large letters it's global warming stupid, playing on the Bill Clinton phrase in early 90s of it's the economy stupid. And the executive editor of Bloomberg Businessweek tweeted out this week that that magazine cover uh, about global warming is only controversial to stupid people, um, <laughs> to people who are informed. And paying attention, there's no controversy. We see it outside our front door. We see it every day. We see it monthly as the power continues to go out and, uh I think that polling in the United States shows that more and more Americans are noticing extreme weather are linking it to climate change and more and more want something to be done about it but the big challenge again is going up against the money the oceans of money as you as you mentioned of Exxon Mobil and the natural gas companies pouring it into our political system that you know buying off You know, buying the silence of many politicians, but there just comes a point where it just can't be ignored politically any further.
12: You've been curious about why New York Mayor Mike Bloomberg endorsed Barack Obama for re-election. Just take another look at the havoc caused by the Frankenstorm benignly named Sandy. Having surveyed all this damage, Bloomberg Businessweek concluded, It's global warming, stupid. If Hurricane Sandy doesn't persuade Americans to get serious about climate change, nothing will. Well, it was enough to prompt President Obama at his press conference this week to say more about global warming than he did all year. I am a firm believer that climate change is real, that it is impacted by uh, human behavior and carbon emissions. And as a consequence, I think we've got an obligation to future generations to do something about it. But he made it clear that actually doing something about it will take a backseat to the economy for now. He did return to New York on Thursday to review the recovery effort on Staten Island. Climate change at Hurricane Sandy brought Naomi Klein to town, too. You may know her as the author of The Shock Doctrine, The Rise of Disaster Capitalism. Readers of two influential magazines put Naomi Klein high on the list of the 100 leading public thinkers in the world. She is now reporting for a new book and documentary on how climate change can spur political and economic transformation. She's also joined with the environmental writer and activist Bill McKibben in a campaign launched this week called Do the Math. More on that shortly. Naomi Klein, welcome.
13: Thank you so much.
12: First, congratulations on the baby.
13: Thank you so much. How old now? He is five months today.
12: First child?
13: My first child, yeah.
12: How does a child change the way you see the world?
13: Well, it lengthens your timeline, definitely. Uh, I, I'm really immersed in in climate science right now because of the project I'm working on is related to that. So you know, there are always these projections into the future. Uh, you know, what's going to what's going to happen in 2050? What's going to happen in 2080? And I think when you're solo, you 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 think, okay, well, how old will I be then? Well, you know, and now I'm I'm thinking, how old will he be <laughs> then, right? And so uh, it's not. You know, but I, I don't like the idea that okay, now I care about the future now that I ha- have a child. I think uh, there are, that, that everybody cares about the future, and, uh, and, and I, I cared about it when I didn't have a child, too. <laughs> yeah.
12: Well, I understand that, but yeah. we're so complacent about climate change. A new study shows that uh, while the number of people who believe it's happening has increased by, say, three percentage points yeah. over the last year, yeah. the number of people who think it is human-caused has dropped.
13: It has dropped dramatically. I mean, the statistics on this are quite incredible. If you, 2007, according to a Harris poll, 71 percent of Americans believed that climate change was real, that it was human caused. And by last year that number was down to 44 percent. 71 percent to 44 percent. That is an unbelievable drop in belief. But then you look at the coverage that the issues received in the media and it's also dropped dramatically from that high, that high point. 2007, you know, this was this moment where you know, Hollywood was on board. Vanity Fair launched their annual green issue. Uh, and by the way, there hasn't been an annual green issue since 2008. <laughs> Stars were showing up to the Academy Awards and hybrid cars. And there was a sense, you know, we all have to play our part, uh, including the elites. And that has really been lost. And, and that's why it's got to come from the bottom up this time.
12: But yeah. what do you think happened to diminish the the enthusiasm for doing something about it, Mm -hmm. the attention from the press, the interest of the elites, what is it?
13: I think we're up against a very powerful lobby. And this is the fossil fuel lobby, and they they have every reason in the world to prevent this from being the most urgent issue that, that, on our agenda. And I think, you know, if we look at the history of the environmental movement, going back 25 years to when this issue really broke through, uh, you know, when, when James Hansen testified before Congress. The NASA scientist, yes. Exactly, our foremost climate scientist right. and said, it is happening and I believe it's human caused. Um, that, that was the moment where we could no longer deny that we knew. Right? I mean, scientists actually knew w- well beforehand, but that was the breakthrough moment, uh, and, and that was 1988. And if we think about what, what else was happening in the late 80s, well, the Berlin Wall fell the, the next year, and, and the end of history was declared. Yeah. And You know, th- th- this is, you know, climate change, in a sense, it hit us at the worst possible historical moment because it does require collective action, right? It does require that we, you regulate corporations, that you get, you know, that you plan collectively as a society. And at the moment that it hit the mainstream, all of those ideas fell into disrepute, right? It was all supposed to be free market solutions. Governments were supposed to get out of the way of corporations. Planning was a dirty word. That was what communists did, right? Um, Anything collective was a dirty word. Margaret Thatcher said there's no such thing as society. Now, if you believe that, you can't do anything about climate change, because it is the essence of a collective problem. This is our collective atmosphere. We can only respond to this collectively. So the environmental movement responded to that by really personalizing the problem and saying, okay, you recycle, and you buy a hybrid car, and treating this like this could, or we'll have business-friendly solutions like cap-and-trade and and carbon offsetting. Um, That doesn't work, so that's part of the problem. So you have this movement that every once in a while would rear up and people would get all excited and we're really going to do something about this and whether it was the Rio summit or the Copenhagen summit or that moment when Al Gore came out with Inconvenient Truth, but then it would just recede because it didn't have that right. collective social support that it needed. And on top of that, you have, we've had this concerted campaign by the fossil fuel lobby to both buy off the environmental movement, to defame the environmental movement, to infiltrate the environmental movement, and to spread lies in the culture. And that's what the climate denial movement has been doing so effectively.
12: I read a piece just this week by the environmental writer Glenn Sherrop. He took a look and finds it over the last two years the lion's share of the damage from extreme weather, floods, tornadoes, droughts, thunderstorms, windstorms, heat waves, wildfires, has occurred in Republican-leaning red states. But those states have sent a whole new crop of climate change deniers to Congress.
13: If you are deeply invested in this free market ideology, if you really believe with your heart and soul that everything public and and anything the government does is, is evil and that our liberation will come from liberating corporations, then climate change fundamentally challenges your worldview precisely because we have to regulate. Um, We have to plan. We can't leave everything to the free market. In fact, climate change is, I would argue, the greatest single free market failure. Uh, This is what happens when you don't regulate corporations and you allow them to treat the atmosphere as an open sewer. So it isn't just, okay, the fossil fuel companies want to protect their profits. It's that this science threatens a worldview. And when you dig deeper, when you drill deeper into those statistics about the drop in belief in climate change, right. what you see is that Democrats still believe in, in climate change in the 70th percentile. That whole drop of belief, uh, that drop off in belief, has happened on the right side of the political spectrum. So the, the, the most reliable predictor of, uh, of whether or not somebody believes that climate change is real is what their views are on a range of other political subjects. You know, what, what do you think about abortion? What, do you, you know, what, are you, what is your view of taxes? Um, and what you find is that people who have very strong conservative political beliefs cannot deal with this science because it threatens everything else they believe.
12: Do you really believe, or are you convinced, that there are no free market solutions? There's no way to let the market help us solve this crisis?
13: No, absolutely the market can play a role and there are things that government can, can do to incentivize the free market to do a better job, yes, but is that a replacement for getting in the way actively of the fossil fuel industry and preventing them from destroying our chances of a future on a livable planet? It's not a replacement. We have to do both.
12: President Obama managed to avoid the subject all through the campaign. He hasn't exactly been leading the way
13: he has not been leading the way and in, in fact you know he spent a lot of time on the campaign bragging about how much pipeline he's laid down and 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 this ridiculous notion of an all of the above energy strategy as if you can you know, d- develop you know, solar and wind alongside more coal, you know, more oil, more natural gas and it's all going to work out in the end. No, it just it doesn't add up. And you know, the I think Personally, I think the environmental movement has been a little too uh, close to Obama, uh, and you know, we've we learned, for instance, recently that about a meeting that took place shortly after Obama was elected, where the message that all these big green groups got was we are d- we don't want to talk about climate change. We want to talk about green jobs and energy security, and 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 a lot of these big green groups played along. So. I you feel, mean the
12: big environmental groups.
13: Yeah, the big environmental groups went along with this messaging, talking about energy security uh, instead of talking about climate change, because they were told that that wasn't a winnable message. I just think it's wrong. I think it's bad strategy.
12: He uh, got reelected.
13: He got well. He got reelected, but you know what? I think he. I think Hurricane Sandy helped Obama get reelected. How so? Well, look at that the Bloomberg endorsement that came at the last minute. I mean, Bloomberg endorsed Obama because of climate change because he believed that this was an issue that voters cared enough about that they would that independence would swing to Obama over climate change and some of the polling absolutely supports this that this was one of the reasons why people voted for Obama over Romney was that they f- they, they, they were concerned about climate change and they felt that he was a better candidate on climate change so I feel more optimistic than I did in 2008 because I think in 2008 the attitude of the environmental movement was our guy just got in and we need to support him and he's going to give us the legislation that we that we want and we're going to take his advice and we're going to be good little soldiers. And now, maybe I'm being overly optimistic, but I think that, that, that people learned the lesson of the past four years and people now understand that what Obama needs, what we need, forget what Obama needs, is a real independent movement with climate change at its center. And that's going to put pressure on the entire political class and directly on the fossil fuel companies on this issue. And and there's no waiting around for Obama to do it for you.
12: Why would you think that the next four years of a lame (laughs) duck president would be more successful from your standpoint than the first four years when he's looking through the election?
13: Well, I think on the one hand we're going to see more direct action. But the other strategy is to go where the problem is, and the problem is the companies themselves. And we're launching the, the Do the Math Tour, which is actually trying to kick off a divestment movement. I mean, we're going after these companies where it hurts, which is, which is their portfolios, which is their stock price. And
12: You're asking people to disinvest, to take their money out of universities in particular. Right? Yeah. This is what happened during the fight against apartheid in South Africa, and ultimately proved successful.
13: Yeah, and this is, we are modeling it on the anti-apartheid divestment movement. Um, and, and, and the reason it's called Do the Math is because of this new body of research that, ca- that came out last year, a, a group in, in, in Britain called the Carbon Tracker Initiative. And this is you know, a fairly conservative group that addresses itself to the financial community. This is not, you know, sort of activist mm-hmm. research. This is a group that uh, identified a market bubble and were concerned about what this meant to investors. Mm. Uh, so it's a, it's a pretty conservative take on it. And, and what the numbers that they crunched uh, found is that if we're going to ward off truly catastrophic climate change, we need to keep the increase, the temperature increase, below 2 degrees centigrade. The problem with that is that they also measured how much the fossil fuel companies and countries who own their own national oil reserves have now currently in their reserves, which means they have already laid claim to this. They already own it. It's already inflating their stock price. Okay? So how much is that? It's five times more. So that means that the whole business model for the fossil fuel industry is based on burning five times more carbon than is compatible with a livable planet. So what we're saying is your business model is at war with life on this planet. It's at war with us, and we need to fight back. So, so we're saying these are rogue companies, and we think, in particular, young people whose whole future lies ahead of them have to send a message to their universities who, you know, almost every university has a huge endowment, and there isn't an endowment out there that doesn't have holdings in these fossil fuel companies. And so young people are saying to the people charged with their education, charged with preparing them for the outside world, for their future jobs, explain to me how you can prepare me for a future that with your actions you're demonstrating you don't believe it. How can you prepare me for a future at the same time as you bet against my future with these fossil fuel holdings? You do the math and you tell me. And I, I think there's a tremendous moral Uh, moral clarity that comes from having that kind of a youth-led movement, so so we're really excited about it.
0: show to continue and continue to improve. Thanks so much for your support.
14: On November 7th in Seattle, environmental activist Bill McKibben and 350.org launched the Do the Math Tour, a new campaign aimed at shutting down the fossil fuel industry. Their strategy? to pressure colleges and municipalities to stop investing in fossil fuel companies. But why might you ask? Well, it's all in the math. The consensus of governments globally is that any warming above two degrees Celsius is unsafe. Climate scientists think we can burn only 565 gigatons more of fuel and stay below the two degree threshold. The problem is that fossil fuel companies hold 2,795 gigatons in reserve. McKibben wants to push the transition to clean energy now by driving dollars to green solutions and away from fossil fuels. He knows this will be a tough battle, but he finds inspiration in Archbishop Desmond Tutu, who succeeded in bringing down apartheid through divestment. McKibben recruited Tutu to be a partner in this very campaign. The bus tour will stop at 21 cities nationwide. I caught up with Bill McKibben before his L.A. show. You're at UCLA today for Do the Math tour. Can you tell us about Do the Math?
15: Absolutely. We're in the middle of this 21 city tour uh, and the math that we're trying to communicate across the country is pretty simple. It, It actually stems from a piece I did for Rolling Stone this summer. And what it demonstrated was that the fossil fuel industry has five times as much carbon in its reserves, in its coal and oil and gas, than even the most conservative government thinks is safe to burn i.e., if they carry out their business plan, the planet tanks, and that's the message we're trying to get across as a kind of prelude to this campaign now underway in a lot of places to get colleges and universities and cities and things to divest their stock in fossil fuel companies, to sell it off. Uh, It's not okay to be profiting from that wreckage.
14: So, uh, to go to the genesis of 350 in the first place, 350 has a major numerical significance.
15: Indeed, uh, 350 may be the most important number in the world, though no one knew it till five years ago. It's what scientists tell us is the most carbon we can safely have in the atmosphere, measured in parts per million. A number, sadly, that we're already well past, we're closing in on 400. Which is why the Arctic is melting. It's why the ocean is 30% more acidic than it used to be. It's why we're seeing this spate of flood, drought, and superstorm. Would
14: you link Hurricane Sandy to climate change?
15: Yeah. Uh, the hurricanes themselves, you know, aren't uh, linked to anything in particular. They happen when a tropical wave comes off Africa, hits the ocean, and begins to spin. But the conditions that let Sandy become such a monster, uh, we're clearly linked to what we've done to the planet. The ocean was five degrees warmer than normal off the coast, uh, and the sea level was at least a foot higher than it would have been without global warming, uh, both of which made things much, much worse. I mean, that was an unprecedented storm. We've never seen a barometric pressure that low north of Cape Hatteras, North Carolina. Uh, this was something else.
14: Five years ago, when this 350 number became significant to you, um, and you wanted to start uh, proselytizing that, uh, at that time, the parts per million were 385? Oh, that's right. 385, and now it's about 392. Is there a point of no return with parts per million? Well,
15: there probably is, but the better way to think about this is it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse and worse. Uh, so. You know, so far we've put enough carbon out to raise the temperature one degree. We're going to come close to two degrees, even if we do everything right, because there's a lot of momentum in this system. Um, Two degrees will be very bad. Three degrees will be much worse, and four degrees exponentially worse than that. So uh, there's always, we've always got to try and slow this down uh, and curtail it. There will come a point at which our efforts will probably be pretty futile. Because we'll start these big feedback loops going from within the natural systems, i.e. you melt the permafrost enough and a lot of methane escapes from underneath and it adds to the global warming cycle and you can sort of sense things begin to spiral in an unpleasant way.
14: You've been really involved with the uh, Keystone Pipeline, protesting that. And what effect would that have on global temperature?
15: Sure. Well, it would... It would play a big role, if it's built, in helping to open up these tar sands in Canada. Okay, And if the tar sands are fully developed, if we go ahead with all the Keystone Pipeline and then the other ones that would follow as they start to make lots of money from it, um, the effect would be pretty dramatic. Our most important climatologist, Jim Hansen, said it would be game over for the climate.
9: And the world.
16: The show on PBS this weekend—it was uh, last night, actually—the documentary on the Dust Bowl of the 1930s. Louise and I watched it. It was absolutely brilliant. Ken Burns's brilliant look at one of the worst man-made ecological disasters in modern times—it was breathtaking. During the Republican No Regulations Bubble, here's how the story plays out. During the Republican No Regulations Bubble of the 1920s. The Harding, the Coolidge, and the Hoover administrations. Commodity prices, particularly wheat, were bid up to the point where thousands of farmers flocked to the Midwest and used mechanized plows to break open tens of millions, perhaps hundreds of millions of acres of virgin prairie land and convert it to fields for growing wheat. Now, the buffalo grass that had covered the plains and the buffalo that grazed on it and fertilized it had helped hold moisture in the earth to produce a viable layer of topsoil for you know, centuries, millennia. But when the farmers turned this over and exposed it to the sun, combined with a decade long period of episodic drought, it all turned to dust that was picked up by the wind and destroyed farms and towns, destroying fields and killing livestock and humans alike. And it took many, many years for things to get better. Finally, mid 30s, the mid 1930s, scientists figured out how humans had screwed up their environment. And FDR, in nineteen thirty five, pushed through programs to pay farmers to conserve the soil, and he used government money to buy back farms from distressed farmers so that the land could be returned to the wild where it would hold moisture. Then in nineteen thirty seven, FDR pushed through a program called the Shelter Belt. This is a program that would plant trees and other soil soil holding vegetation on a hundred mile wide belt that stretched from the Canadian border to Texas. He wasn't building an oil pipeline. He was he was planting stuff. It, they, they couldn't get it funded as an emergency appropriation. So, 1937, FDR put the put the WPA, the Works Progress Administration, to work on this as well. And between planting trees, the shelter belt, and new ways of plowing that the uh, Roosevelt administration were recommending, they reduce they they reduced soil erosion by 65 percent. So a disaster that took us two or three decades to create was largely resolved in one decade, although the human and environmental toll was awful. But all this points to two future issues. The first is our current problem with global warming. The reality is right now, dust bowls are emerging all around the world. Although with their opposite... Or along with their opposite, flooding of coastal areas is a result of both unsustainable agricultural products or practices, excuse me. Uh you know, the world is pushing over seven billion people. In nineteen thirty there were only two billion people in the world. And global warming. Second problem is the whole variety of problems associated with global warming itself, from more powerful storms to melting glaciers, which is particularly disastrous in mountainous areas. Now down downstream from these mounting from these melting mountain glaciers, you have alternately flooding and then withholding water, drought from the downstream population centers. Even the World Bank has now weighed in on the topic and a new report just came out titled Turn Down the Heat Why a Four Degrees Celsius Warmer World Must Be Avoided. That would be seven degrees Fahrenheit. The World Bank warns that the the World this is the World Bank get this. Paul Wolfowitz's old organization warns that the temperature increase will be felt most along the equator in the Mediterranean, North Africa, the Middle East, and parts of the United States. This temperature increase is going to lead to scarcity in water and food resources and disruptions in biodiversity. In fact, it already is. And it will force even worse mass migrations of people out of affected areas. Rising temperatures are also going to lead to rising sea levels, and they already are, which threatens cities located in India, Mexico, Vietnam, as well as several African nations. Several small islands around the planet will likely be unable to sustain their populations at all by 2100 as a result of this rapidly warming planet. These threats caused by our relentless pushing of billions of tons of carbon into our atmosphere every hour May well be the subject of a future Ken Burns type documentary. Just, just think about this. Just imagine you're you're uh, 50 years in the future, and you're watching a documentary on how humans destroyed the planet and themselves in the twenty twentieth and twenty first centuries. Of course, that you know, the it, just the ability to sit around sit around watch it on TV, you know, a hundred years from now, assumes that this future Burns style piece will have the same happy ending that the Burns piece on the Dust Bowl did. That is, hey, we figured out what the problem was and we solved it. We stopped doing that super stupid stuff. Because if not, there won't be a special. There won't even be TV. Or the civilization that supports TV. So the question, will we begin working today? As hard as FDR did with the Dust Bowl in the 1930s, to solve the problem of too much carbon in our atmosphere? Or will it destroy us and everything we've built with 10,000 years of what we call civilization?
12: Hey Jay,
9: this is George from South Florida. I was just responding to your uh, recent question on how or why we vote uh, the way we do, why we vote liberal, if that's the case. Um, And I would definitely say that I agree with you in that um, I feel like um, I'm being selfless in voting liberal because of that idea that I'm voting for the greater good or the good of others above, you know, just the personal good for myself. I do know a few conservatives that don't seem self, uh, selfish and seem quite selfish, selfless as well and wonder why they vote the way they do at times. So I just wanted to just call to agree with you and say that that's definitely the way I vote and why I vote the way I do. So, um, yeah, thanks. I'll leave another message another
8: time. Bye-bye. Hey Jay, this is Mark in South Carolina. I'm fascinated by your question, do we vote selfishly? I vote for policies that will help everybody because I want to live in a world that is just and equitable, but calling that selfish or not doesn't help us make sense of it all. Let's ask instead, do you vote for policies that are fair and in the best interest of all concerned? Something that frames my thinking on this is an appreciation, I hope, of history and economics and Maybe epidemiology and science. When we're successful we owe a major portion of that success to our fellow citizens and their roles for making our success possible. When we have more we're willing to spend more to improve the public space. And when we have better wealth equality the evidence is overwhelming that even the wealthy benefit from that better equality. Not long ago I used to buy into the libertarian viewpoint that less government was always better and. Everybody deserves to keep 100% of their income. That dogma just does not stand up to scrutiny, though. These policies don't help anyone unless their ideal is to become a warlord. Enlightened people like Warren Buffett have a refined sense of their self-interest, but I don't think calling that selfish is really appropriate. Thanks, Jay. Hi, Jay. This is Dave from Columbia, Washington.
11: Your 11, your, uh, 12-2 episode on foreign policy was absolutely fantastic. Lots of things in there, lots of, uh, thought-provoking ideas. At the very end, there was a voicemail from Sonia that, uh, followed up on our previous discussion, uh, why are we, uh, and by that I, you know, I interpret mostly Americans, but frankly, Western culture, so hung up about sex? And, yeah, this is one of the big problems with why we can't progress on a lot of issues as a culture. And I would point to religion as one of the fundamental reasons why we're so hung up about sex. Uh, Let me point everyone to uh, RecoveringFromReligion.org, which is exactly what it says. It's an organization devoted to helping people recover, in in their words, from the damage of religion and move forward with your lives. One of the uh, contentions that their director, I don't, Dr. Daryl Ray, is the founder of the organization, uh, wrote a book, and one of his contentions is that religion uses guilt as a a primary marketing tool, if you will. Um, one of the ways to get, you know, for any business to get repeat business is to sell a product that only you can supply. If people are guilty about sex and you teach them to be guilty about sex and they internalize this guilt that you can't un guilt yourself. The only way to absolve yourself of a learned guilt is to go back to the place where you learned that guilt and that they can cure you of that guilt. And so this is one of the tools that religions use to build brand loyalty, if you will, to, to keep people in the face is to give them a problem, guilt over sexual desire, sexual activity, that only that religion can give them the uh, the tools to recover from. And so, you know, this is, of course, grown out of control from being, you know, a, a marketing uh, gimmick that one particular uh, group used at one time. It, it's obviously been very effective on humans, and so lots of other groups have... Uh, adopted as a as a marketing tool. And this is not uh just Christianity or just even Judaism, Islam, the Abrahamic religions. Uh it is pretty universal. There's a lot of sexual guilt in uh almost every religion that I can think of. There's probably an example of one, some very some very liberal church, uh, I went to the Unitarians that um, have a fantastic sexual education program within their Sunday school curriculum. Uh, But, you know, they come out of the Christian tradition, which is Mm -hmm. uh, pretty guilt-ridden on the whole. Uh, So, anyhow, uh, just following up on Sonia's thoughts with uh, similar ideas and maybe an extension of that discussion. Thanks a lot, Jay. Hi, Jay. This is Darren calling from Georgia. First, I want to thank you for your show. It gives me something to think about besides all the mccain Palin stickers I see on cars down here. I got a call in in response to Scott from an episode ago with his argument that increasing the population was the way to solve all of our problems, or at least our major problem according to him, which is space colonization. We can talk about whether that's the main problem or not, um, but the real flaw with his ridiculous argument is that you don't solve problems by throwing more people at them. You solve problems by throwing funding and intelligence at them. We've got a lot of intelligence, we just don't have the funding, and if we're going to waste all of our money feeding the billions of people this planet can't sustain then we're going to destroy this planet before we ever get the chance to get off of it.
0: Thanks for listening everyone and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is two zero six two zero two three four one zero. So hopefully if you've been you know, listening to this show with any consistency and uh, and actually listening, then you heard some things that sounded familiar in, in this show: the uh, the big 350.org campaign, the uh, you know the the stops around uh, cities throughout the country, and the big new divestment campaign against fossil fuel companies, uh, sort of modeled after the anti-apartheid movement uh you know I, I think i think this is a pretty exciting thing i i particularly like and, and hopefully you feel the same way you know about movements that you know really have uh, a very specific goal very specific uh, actionable steps that uh, individuals can take to help push the process along so uh so the the big website that everyone can go to to get involved is gofossilfree.org that is the 350.org uh, website set up for this campaign and it, you know it is Sort of directed at college campuses. That's that's just the the epicenter of where this movement starts, and you know can potentially grow from there. But that, that's where it's starting, and so the, the way they have it set up, you can be a student, faculty member, alumni of of university, or unaffiliated with any university. So it pretty much covers everyone. Uh, you know, whatever your position is, they have something that you can do to help get involved with this process. So please check out gofossilfree.org. And also the good news I want to pass along from uh, from 350.org that came out just after their campaign ended, you know, their uh, city by city campaign was that um, the email they sent out right afterwards was that they had uh, gotten a story at the, on the homepage of the New York Times or the the front page, I guess, of, of the physical paper itself. And so, what you can do to help with that, just because it's an, it's an exciting thing, obviously, uh, big news, positive news, is to go check out that article. Of course, just to read yourself, but then to also share it, and uh, you know, emailing it to friends helps. Keep that article uh, you know, popular on the website so that other people are going to be more likely to see it. Uh, the New York Times has a you know, most emailed articles list that people can scan through. So uh, to get details on that, go to 350.org slash NYT as in New York Times. So that's it for 350.org. I also just wanted to highlight that one of the other voices you heard today uh, being interviewed was uh, Mike Tidwell, the executive director of the Chesapeake Climate Action Network. And uh, and I just want to mention that that is actually uh, the organization that I used to work for before – uh, switching over to do this show full time, uh, I, I worked at the Chesapeake Climate Action Network. I was Mike's assistant. You know that that was where I spent all, all my my days uh, for you know nearly three years. I think. So I just want to put that out there. And, and they are actually considered by Bill McKibben to be. One of the you know, most effective regional climate change organizations in the country and, uh, and believing that had nothing to do with me being there. You know, they're just great uh, on their own and are, are doing perfectly well without me. So stay tuned, and in the next episode, I'll, I'll give more details about them and uh, and what can be done to support them. I mean, they, they are a regional organization, so maybe it doesn't sound like uh, the sort of thing that people in other regions would want to support, but they're uniquely positioned because they're in uh, the Washington, D.C. area, which means when climate-related uh, actions, you know, White House-related, uh, you know, Capitol Hill-related actions happen in the city, they are the group on the ground who get people out uh to rallies uh you know get petitions uh sent around and and delivered to congress those sorts of things so they're they're actually really importantly positioned and really good at what they do so they're they're a good organization uh to support uh, which I do and so, like I said, I'll tell more about that in the next episode. So that's it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to everyone who supports this show by becoming a member or making one-time donations to the program. That is absolutely how the show survives. Stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every third day. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com.
9: Light, light,